welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. Hi, I'm Michael Ewald, host of Credit Hour. In today's episode, we interview Wendy Redstar, guest artist and instructor at the Oscar Howe Summer Art Institute hosted earlier this summer. Wendy grew up in the Crow Reservation in Montana and is a multimedia artist focused on intergenerational and historically influenced art. Her daughter and collaborator, Beatrice, joined us as well. Wendy, Beatrice, how are you doing today? We're doing great. How are you? I am doing excellent. Thank you. Um, you know, you are here for the Oscar Howe Summer Art Institute, um, kind of guest artists on campus, helping some of the, the students learn, um, you know, about their craft. I'm just curious if you can maybe, you know, explain your background. Um, so my background is in um, sculpture. So I got a BFA from Montana State University in Bozeman. I was raised on the Crow Indian Reservation, so that university was about four hours away from my reservation. And then uh, I got my master's at UCLA and I traveled around doing some artist residencies for a little bit after I graduated. And then I ended up in Portland. What's your background, P? Oh, um, I was born in Portland and I can't say raised because I guess I'm still being raised, but um, and oh, um, and I've been collaborating with my dad for a long time, doing some helping out on some of his things, giving him ideas for his job stuff. And then at around seven, I think, yeah, um, me and Wendy started collaborating. And then, well, then I think around maybe even this. Like last year, I think I started making my podcast, and I'm not old enough to be any older than that, so. And what's your podcast? These Big Laughs. Well, so for our audience, there's another podcast you might be able to check out. You know, at the artist talk that, that you all gave on Monday, um, you sort of talked about this concept of intergenerational art, and obviously you have Beatrice here with you. Wendy, I don't know if you can maybe explain to us what that why intergenerational art is important. You also kind of reflected that you've done you know some projects with your own father um, as well, and, and you know just kind of how that I guess figures into your work. Um, yeah, I think. Uh, for me, when I was starting out, I sort of had this sort of standard lens of like how an artist should be, and and that didn't really include family really much. That you know, um, that's sort of separated, and I feel like a lot of artists operate in that that mode. And it wasn't until uh, um, Beatrice and I started to collaborate in 2014, um, and the sort of this kind of organic thing that happened where I um, included some of her work in an exhibition and she talked at the opening and I realized that um, she's really good at public engagement and that uh, why am I separating her from my practice or having that sort of pressure of separating her from from my practice and uh, deciding then that I would like to kind of explore this some more. And we've worked with like the Seattle Art Museum, the Portland Art Museum, the Tacoma Art Museum, Denver Art Museum. We'll be working with the Palm Springs Art Museum, Tang Teaching Museum, and doing stuff like here at Oscar Howe. 
and realizing that there doesn't need to be a separation and and that can even enhance your practice. So that was one one part of it. And the other part of it, I think just culturally, um, being Crow and sort of the way that the family dynamic works um, in the Crow community is that um, children are sort of included in everything. And so to me, I feel like the sort of kind of this natural thing that's happening. And I guess you could say that in like earlier times for like settler folks, like all the kids were working on the farm together. Uh, right in the mix and you know through the industrial era and that kind of thing things got separated to nine to five jobs you know and kids are separated from that and so I really find that to be quite interesting. Uh, One other thing I'd like to point out though is that I love to work with cultural items from my uh, community and to me, I consider that to be a collaborative with uh, my community using old historic photos of different chiefs or, for instance, a lot of my family's own uh, photographs that they've taken, I'll incorporate into my work. And I really consider that to be a collaborative thing as well. Beatrice, do you have any thoughts on on what it's like, I guess, kind of, you know, in, it's interesting. We spoke with a, another artist you know, named Keith Braveheart, who's at the Institute here as well. And you know, he talks about that everyone, when they're a young person, maybe as an artist, everybody draws, everybody likes to be creative. Um, you're sort of doing it, I feel like, in an elevated way, um, you know, as kind of a multimedia artist, you know, contributing to um, the work that you do with your mom. Also a podcast. I like to think that that is an art form of some degree. Um, how, you know, I don't know if you can reflect on maybe what it's like to be an artist. Um, hmm. Gosh, that's hard. Um, well, I don't know, being an artist, I guess everyone could kind of be an artist if they wanted to. But some people just decide not to call themselves artists. Um, I guess being an artist is kind of just wanting to put your art out there and... Um, make art that you're will um that you're willing to have other people see because if nobody else can see your art then it may still be art but i think it's better if you share it so can you talk a little bit b about the difference of like the art that you're learning at school and sort of the art that we're doing together or that you've experienced with your dad well um I guess the difference, probably the biggest difference, is that the art that I learned in school mostly involves us drawing angry birds, so uh, I'm not even lying here. Um, But also I think that maybe there's just a bigger meaning in the art that we do together because most people that I know that are doing art in school don't feel that there's a giant, like, big meaning to it. Hmm. They just feel like they're either doing it for fun or doing it because they have to. Okay. Um, you know, a moment ago you spoke about growing up on the, the Crow Reservation in Montana. Um, that's what struck me about some of the, the photographs that you showed um, earlier at your talk was the, the differences that we have with maybe some of the Plains tribes that we're more familiar with, the Lakota and Dakota. I don't know if you maybe 
can describe some of those differences? What makes you know Krog culture unique? Um, you, you know, you, you talked about the the TP style in particular. You know, the hourglass shape that that a crow TP has. I don't know if you can maybe talk about some of the the cultural vibrancy that the crow culture has that we might not necessarily be familiar with here. Well, I think the number one thing is that we're very handsome, and the second thing is that we're super intelligent. So. <laughs> That's a big difference. I'm kidding. I like to do that. I'm in, I'm in enemy territory here, so I have to joke about that. Um, you no, know, there's a lot of similarities as far as the importance of um, buffalo and sort of lifestyle similarities of like um, teepee and sort of um, yeah, just I think ways of. Um, going about everyday life are kind of very similar just because of the region that we're in. Um, but as far as uh, the differences, I would say definitely, and I think this goes for every uh, tribal community, that we have our own very specific, well, number one, language, but also designs um, in um, beadwork and uh, regalia. And when my dad was... Um, little he he would say he could easily point out um if he went to a powwow different people um and know which tribe they were from just based on uh the distinction between their regalia so i think that's really important so for um crows we have seven colors um pink green uh white we like to outline our beadwork in white um and we love geometric designs and so those are some things that you'd notice that are quite different. Hairstyles are different as well. A lot, a lot of times the men like to wear pompadours, and I think our men love to wear hair extensions, and I think that was very unique to um, the crows as well. Um, so I would say definitely there are stylistic differences for sure, but also culturally the customs and things like that as well. You know, that was one of my favorite parts of your talk was the peace delegation photos and then the explanations that you would sort of add um, to the photos. And to explain for the audience in the 1880s, I think, is, is generally when they maybe started the, the, the trips out to D.C., the, the different um, chiefs would go out there and they would take these beautiful portraits. Um, they really are. They're stunning. Um, and I just... You know, sort of when you would see one without the the explanation, and then you would you you juxtapose it with one with the explanation. I don't know why it just—it's it, almost like they're immediately more humanized. If that makes any sense, it—it's it, you know—it takes it from you know this is a word that gets a bad connotation, but in a certain sense, this kind of exotic, um, you know, unfamiliar, um, you know, wardrobe and, and dress, and it just it it brings it home, you know, that there were stories to the the beads that they would have or, or the feather that they would have. It, it signified something. I don't know if you can maybe describe um, some of what that is, because I, I just, that was that was so cool to me to, to understand and learn that each of these, you know, pieces that they would have in their regalia really did represent something about their life, about their culture, about some of the deeds that they accomplished. I thought that was so cool. Yeah. And I think that's what I love about... Um about, I guess, to, to say in general, uh, native regalia, because everything has a very specific meaning to it. So 
Um, I mean, there are some aesthetics definitely play into it, but really it's there's a purpose for it. And so that's something that I would really want viewers to take away with them when they go and they see some of these objects in museums to recognize, well, why is that? Let's try to find out. Um, delegations are really interesting, and they actually started when... Um, uh, starting, you know, from the beginning of the the uh, founding of this country, where indigenous people were taken by boat to visit the kings and queens in France and uh, England and um, Spain, and uh, they would get their portraits painted. So this uh, sort of started there, and then with the invention of photography. Um, they would photograph the different delegations that would travel to Washington, D.C. And they really did that more as a means of, uh, for ethnography, because they were studying um, Native people, uh, uh, their, the circumference of their skulls and things like that. Um, so they really wanted a catalog to, to um, uh, use for those purposes. And so... The great thing, though, for me as a, a descendant of these chiefs is that um, I get to see them and um, get to see their faces. And um, um, so I'm really grateful that those images do exist, even if they were uh, taken for other purposes. Um, so for me, it was really important to, and you got it right, and it's, it makes me really happy to hear about the humanizing of them, because that's that's what I want, and that's pretty much the goal of my practice. Is I don't want to be uh, othered anymore, and so and if I can get to the humanity of it, um, that's what's important. And so the fact that you picked that up is great. Um, but yeah, so if I knew the names of the chiefs, their uh, name would be written on the portrait. Any information that I knew uh, about them or found out would be written on the portrait and then the breakdown of like what um, different parts of their outfit meant. And basically what they were showing is they brought their finest outfits. They, those aren't their everyday outfit, but when they were going to meet the president, they wanted to show, like, look at all of these heroic uh, war deeds that I accomplished and that I'm your equal here. And so that's what they were doing. And some of the delegations would actually gift uh, the president a war shirt with some of those honors to you know, show him, like, you're a chief, too. You know, one of the, you had this awesome quote in the talk, and it was something to the effect that, you know, they would, you know, they would risk their lives, basically, to, to have the honor to wear, you know, some of this regalia. Um, I don't know. I, it just that's what I thought was cool. This kind of historical connection to art, because I think that that is something that that you don't necessarily um, you know jump up, jump up to the top of your head when you think of art. You maybe think of it as a you know museum, and, and certainly there's uh, history to that, right? And I think you know when you see at the Coachella con- concert everybody wearing the war bonnets, right? They have no clue that right. you know when you see the men and that they they had to risk everything to be able to wear that and that's kind of what I want to get across that those things were life and death things now you know they've been sort of dumbed down to like nothing really and and as sort of a gimmicky cool thing to wear without 
uh, having any knowledge of, of what that meant. You know, to, to switch directions, another, I thought, really cool story um, was an art project that you undertook at college um, about sort of setting up the, the teepees. Um, I don't know if you can just relate this, this story to us and, and kind of start from the beginning and what you were trying to accomplish and then, you know, what, what ultimately happened. Yeah, and th- that is such an important um, piece for me. And the reason why it's important is because it really kind of laid the foundation of how I work today, which I consider to be a research-based practice. And so it started um, from me moving away from my reservation about four hours, kind of first experience of being alone, like many college students go through. Um, but taking Native American studies courses and learning things that um, I never really questioned. And uh, through that, gaining a real interest in wanting to learn specifically about my own community's history. And through that, I found this wonderful chief named Sits in the Middle of the Land. And he was uh, the chief that told the US government where our territory was. And he used a beautiful metaphor about the how we set up a teepee using four poles. And he said, my home is where my teepee sits. And uh, when, and what he did was he put these four foundation poles um, on the major migra- migration routes that we took through the season, and that mapped out 38.5 million acres. And that's where our, our home is. And that's where the university was. So. I thought I had left the reservation. Um, I left Crow Country, but I was actually still in Crow Country. And so to honor that, I set up uh, these uh, teepees or the four foundation poles around campus. And I ran into some like um, trouble with people knocking over the installations that I would set up around campus and struggled with that for a little bit and decided, well, I've had enough of that, and I'll just stick them on the 50-yard line in the football field. And that was a lot of fun. Actually, my parents came and helped me. <laughs> and that was the first time that I'd ever been at the, to the football stadium. Um, so that was a great, a great experience to, to visit for the first time. And I don't know if the photos are publicly available, but that's what they're I love about it. They're on my website. Okay, yeah, they're they on are. the website. Yeah. Which, what was the project called? Because it was kind of broken um, down by project. I believe it... Would say my home is where my teepee sits. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, I I love the photos because it kind of progressively, you know, you kind of sh- show the first, you know, s- structure with with um, you know a couple of teepee foundation poles, um, you know, maybe like two or three structures, and then it kind of progressively gets larger. And then when you see the the foundation poles on the football field, I mean, it, it's a huge structure. I mean, it is like big. It's it was, <laughs> I just I don't know. It, it was a cool story. You know, you had said that. Um, you know, in sort of describing the story that you didn't necessarily take it as like a political act, uh, but that was what, I guess, one of the charges that maybe people had about, you know, that specific project was that everyone thought it was was very political. I don't know if you can just reflect on that and and what you meant by that. And actually, I had this uh, visiting professor who had come from Yale and, um, and he actually exposed me to a lot of contemporary art practices that I, I mean, basically at that point, Picasso and Salvador Dali were my references for contemporary art. So he really kind of opened my mind to conceptual art. Um, but he said to me, like, you make very political art. And this is a white male professor. Um, 
And I actually was kind of offended by that because I thought, well, I, I don't want to be political. You know, I'm just making my work. And it wasn't until years later that I realized where that statement was coming from. And what it was is that there is a real lack of knowledge of uh, the history of Native people to this country. And uh, what I was bringing up was this, this unknown knowledge, and it was uh, creating this sort of friction of the colonial sort of norm. And it was rubbing up against it, and that felt very political. And for me, I was just stating, like, this was Crow country, and I was sort of celebrating that, and that that was just a fact, you know. And so it didn't feel political to me as a Crow, a, a crow woman. Um, so that's what I meant by that, that it just felt normal to me. Yeah, maybe to, to take a step back and get more philo- philosophical for a second. Why art? What, what attracted you to, to art as a career? And I, I'm curious, the same question with Beatrice. Obviously, you have probably artistic parents. Um, so that, I think, probably helps right off the bat, right? But I, I'm curious what each of your motivations is for, for going out there and expressing art. You know, I really struggled as a kid with, um, I had dyslexia, and I know this is kind of like one of those very common cliche things that artists will say, but I I really struggled. I did, uh, I had such a hard time in math and science and reading, um, but I was always sort of uh, creative and a really good creative problem solver. So even though I had a lot of trouble in those areas, I still got really good grades, but I really had to struggle in figuring out alternative ways to understand the information. And so for me, I feel like I was creative even if it wasn't like an art, but in like figuring out the world to make sense for myself. And so when I got to undergrad, um, I went in graphic design, and I did not like it. I took found, and we're in the graphic design lab right now, so <laughs> I hope there's no bad juju. That, um, but um, so they had part of the graphic design um, program was that you would take foundations courses, and I was terrible at drawing. Could never draw or what I thought was a terrible drawer, which was I couldn't draw things realistically. Um, But I took a 3D course and that seemed to like really make a lot of sense for me. And I was encouraged then by the sculpture professor to, uh, to switch majors. And then it just kind of bloomed from there, especially with that project, my home is where my teepee sits. Then everything kind of snapped together. Like I can do this and I can go on this grand adventure and learn all this knowledge, sort of like a re-education for myself and everything that I do. Um, And it's highly addictive for me. So everything I do has a sort of creative arc to it. Um, Well, thinking about it, I guess I just um, had very artistic parents since the beginnings. And so I've just been along for the ride for a while. and, And it's fun to help out. And make a little art to put out there so people know more stuff about whatever I'm trying to show with my art. And B is is, is going to be so interesting because her dad and I talk about this because art is pretty much all B knows. I mean, she hangs out at all our weird art events and <laughs> goes on all our art adventure. Her, her dad is an artist in social practice 
Um, his name's Harold Fletcher, and um, so he does really interesting things. So she kind of, this is her, her normal, um, but she is breaking out in into her own sort of territory. So it's going to be really exciting to see. Maybe she'll be while well, she want, wanted to be a Supreme Court justice. Mm-hmm. So that's or quite an MMA different. Fighter. Or an MMA fighter. So hey, there's time Those for everything. That's what I say. <laughs> um, well, I'm curious. Who is you know? Do you have any particular artistic inspirations that you really look to? Um, you know, as as the people that kind of drive you. Maybe, well, she's not alive, but I really am interested in Frida Kahlo's art. Okay. Um, it's very interesting, and I've read a lot of books about her, and she has a very interesting background, and she was able to deal with a lot of struggle and stuff. Mm. Yeah, that's a good one. Well, you know, that's, I think that's something that you know, gets lobbed onto artists, whether they like it or not, is sort of the process of struggle, right? That that almost somehow contributes to art. Um, you know, how do you manage that in your own art? How much of art, like I said, you know, the the peace delegation photos, I love those, because um, they, they, I think, tell a story about, you know, your, your kind of ancestry, and it, it, it like I said, it's just, was cool to bring life, I think, to some of the stuff that, that you know, doesn't have it when you just look at the black and white photo. How do you deal with, you know, the internal demons that, that might exist in your own life? And how does that get represented through art? Well, I am a very, very tortured soul. So I just want to make that clear. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think, like I, I, I said, uh, it's really a, a, a re-education for myself that I really want to share with other folks, too. And so I think one of the things... Mm. Well, I didn't show all of I focused more on sort of this collaborative work with B, but I really love to do timelines. So one of the timelines that I did show was this event that we have on our reservation, a cultural event called Crow Fair that uh, started in uh, 1904. And we're going to have the 100th Crow Fair this August. And uh, doing a timeline of all the um, archived uh, photos from 1904 to 2016, and basically what I'm trying to do is fill in the gaps for myself. And part of the 1880 Crow Peace Delegation is one of those gaps. And they were going to Washington, D.C. to fight for our land. Um, and so the more that I can fill in those gaps is kind of where I'm going to be going with my my career is filling that in. And the most recent one that I did was of my dad's, my dad. His name's Wallace Redster Jr., his all-Indian rock band called The Maniacs. And so I did a timeline of his musical um, history and career um, starting in um, the 1950s and all the way into uh, 1978. that was another gap for me. People were like, this is so different, you know? But I was like, no, this is part of this sort of uh, timeline of, and it's leading to, to me and my experience. So I'm really trying to catalog these experiences. Well, and I think that's another interesting element of your art is that it, um, I think people have maybe preconceptions when they think of, of Native American art, Indian art. Um, and I, I definitely would say your has a modern sort of, uh, I don't know, identity to it. I, I'm curious how you kind of 
you know, is it a struggle at all to you to kind of honor the past um, while also kind of searching for, you know, new art, kind of your own expression? Or do you not even think about that? I, I, I don't know if I'm asking maybe the right question. I think we are all of the past, you know, and we're of all of those collected experiences leading up to now. And so for me, it's really about kind of understanding where, looking back and where where we came from and what's going to happen now. And B is definitely a part of that next uh, chapter and adventure. And and so for me, I think uh, everything is sort of relevant to me. It kind of collapses onto itself. Um, so I guess I am thinking about it, but I'm not thinking about it as well. Right. You know, and I thought that was another cool part, you know, you get to watch, you know, kind of the interaction between the students here that, that are at the Oscar Howe Art Institute. And one of the questions that got asked was like, you know, how do you like find this stuff, right? Like, and it was a cool moment for me to kind of just like be an observer and look at, cause you know, you go, you go into this hour long talk and I don't know if this person, you know, this particular student maybe would have ever thought of, well, how do I research historical archived, you know, photographs? But of course, you know, this talk inspires the this, this student that this is maybe something they want to go do. They want to go try and find. I don't know if you can just reflect on that and maybe your experience here. Um, how fulfilling is that, you know, as an artist to get to you know, tell these stories that might not otherwise exist or might, you know, kind of disappear from history? Um, well, I'm obsessed with it, so it's something that I love to do, but uh, also regarding that student, I think it's really, it's so wonderful to be here, to be working with Native youth, because this is something that I didn't have when I was going through uh, high school and through my education and undergrad and graduate school, and um and just uh, sort of working through these different ideas with them and kind of expanding their ideas of what art can be and just the, sort of the projects that we're working on aren't um, sort of your standard um, art projects. And, and, you know, my hope is just to give them these tools that they can ask questions like that or that they can have some sort of creative problem-solving tools because I think those were the biggest things that um, helped me with my career. Um, so, yeah, I'm just really excited to be here and to kind of be part of that, um, part of the help for the next gener generation of Native artists. Well, and what maybe advice would you offer um, an aspiring artist? I'm kind of curious from from both of your perspectives because I think that you both, you know, as a, a burgeoning artist, I, I think you might have some interesting ideas, Beatrice. But then, you know, Wendy, you know, is making you know art and, and the career that you've had. I'm kind of curious what you know advice you might be able to offer, you know, with sort of the time that you've had to reflect. What advice? Um, hmm. My advice is to um well if you don't like the way your art looks or you're just trying to kind of cliche it so other people like it don't do that because it's not going to be as good if it doesn't really come from the heart and stuff. It's a really good one. I think my advice would uh, for artists would be to be resourceful, um, um, ask for help, 
for sure. Um, I would also always have them be open and um, be flexible and always asking questions because those questions can lead you to some really interesting places. Um, get a good tax accountant. Also, never, ever, like, never, ever... Um, when I first started, I sort of, you know, I have this body of work that was is very popular and has led me to, and it's still leading me to some great places. But I, I sort of um, didn't... Uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? I sort of took it for granted... Um, and I would say never take your work for granted because it could explode at some moment and you you know, you could have let it go for for what it's you know, way below what it's worth. So always be really mindful of how you archive your work, how you put it out in, into the world. Be kinda like Prince. You know, Prince was so crazy about like everything. Like he wanted to um have a say so on everything that he did, including his image and his sound, that kind of thing. So I would say do the same as well. And um, yeah, just just really being resourceful, using as many um, tools as you can. And yeah, the tax accountant for sure is really good. <laughs> well, the last question that, uh, that I'll ask both of you um, is, is again, another reflective question. But, you know, at this, this stage in your life, um, how, how old are you again? I'm 10. You're 10 years old. What do you know for sure? It's an Oprah question. So it's a, it is kind of one of those questions. What do I know for sure? Like in an art view? Oh, just about, it could be about life, it could be about art. I know for sure that... Okay, I need to think about this one that you can... Well, I know for sure that B is going to um, be connected to her community culturally and have a really strong tie uh, to the Crow community going forward. And that feels really good to me. Um, well, I know for sure that... <laughs> um, well, I know for sure that... Jurassic Park is coming out on your birthday? Oh, that too, but... Um, <laughs> Jurassic World. Oh, Jurassic World, okay. Um... I know for sure that a plant is going to die if you don't water it enough. There you go. From experience. That was That's really some sage good. gardening that advice. That was really good. No, well, thank you. Thank you so much for, for joining us. And thank you for you know, sharing both of your talents um, with the students here at the Oscar Howe Summer Art Institute. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Credit Hour a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. Listening is 100% of the grade, so we hope you enjoyed the episode. Next week, we interview Dan Engelbritson, chair of the Department of Biomedical Engineering and director of the Gear Center in Sioux Falls, about what's next for the field in South Dakota. Until next time, go Yotes.